I consider Benjamin Franklin a mentor. A friend now. Though he's been dead these 220 some odd years. I learned a lot from Ben Franklin and I was thinking about how was it that I came to consider Benjamin Franklin someone worth listening to and I believe that I found the seed of my relationship with Benjamin Franklin in that Walt Disney Studios movie in the mid-50s called Ben and Me, or Ben and I, I don't remember. Probably Ben and Me. But that little mouse in that cartoon, when he finally got around to the part where he was climbing into Benjamin Franklin's life, he climbed in through the window and he stepped onto a pile of books. And in that pile of books, one of the books was Pilgrim's Progress. The little mouse stepped onto the spine of the book Pilgrim's Progress, jumped down onto the desk, and the rest is history. You know, they invented bifocals together. They invented uh, the potbelly stove and lightning rods and uh, dealt with the empires of the world. Because as a young man, his father, whether it was the Mouses or Ben's, it was Ben's father, he said it in his autobiography, that his father had said to me, said to him, Ben, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings, and not before mean men. And me and Ben have had one-way conversations about that very fact a number of times when I have considered the hassle that would be involved in standing before kings and being polite, being aware of the purpose of being polite, comprehending courtesy. What a hassle that would be for me. In the 1780s, I would never have learned to wear lace on my cuffs. By 1826, there were documented ancestors of mine serving as soldiers in what became Texas. And for the next 195 years, there has been a member of my family serving as a soldier under a flag that represents the people who live in Texas.
who are from everywhere. I don't know if there are any such things as native Texans anymore. But there were some Indians, the Cato Indians, over in East Texas. Southwest Arkansas, Northwest Louisiana. And a few years ago, something began to just interrupt my conversations with Ben and push me to stop pretending I knew more about him and the world he lived in than I actually did. So I spent a little more time with things that he's written. And I found one that I'm going to I'm going to read it here on this podcast. Something Benjamin Franklin wrote regarding the way that Americans were treating Native Americans. And it wasn't right. So, technology allowing, in a second or two, I'll come back and read this to you. These are Benjamin Franklin's remarks concerning the savages of North America. Savages, we call them because their manners differ from ours, which we think the perfection of civility. They think the same of theirs. Perhaps if we could examine the manners of different nations with impartiality, we should find no people so rude as to be without rules of politeness, nor any so polite as not to have some remains of rudeness. The Indian men, when young, are hunters and warriors. When old, they're counselors. For all their government is by counsel of the sages. There's no force, there are no prisons, no officers to compel obedience or inflict punishment. Hence, they generally study oratory. The best speaker having the most influence The Indian women till the ground, dress the food, nurse and bring up the children, and preserve and hand down to posterity the memory of public transactions. These employments of men and women are accounted natural and honorable. Having few artificial wants, they have abundance of leisure for improvement by conversation. Our laborious manner of life compared with theirs, they esteem slavish and base. And the learning on which we value ourselves, they regard as frivolous and useless. An instance of this occurred at the Treaty of Lancaster in Pennsylvania around 1744 between the government of Virginia and the Six Nations. 
After the principal business was settled, the commissioners from Virginia acquainted the Indians by a speech that there was at Williamsburg a college with a fund for educating Indian youth, and that if the Six Nations would send down half a dozen of their young lads to that college, the government would take care that they should be well provided for and instructed in all the learning of the white people. It's one of the Indian rules of politeness not to answer a public proposition the same day that it is made. They think it would be treating it as a light matter, and that they show respect by taking time to consider it as of a matter important. They therefore deferred their answer till the day following, when their speaker began by expressing their deep sense of the kindness of the Virginia government in making them that offer. For we know, says he, that you highly esteem the kind of learning taught in these colleges, and that the maintenance of our young men while with you would be very expensive to you. We are convinced, therefore, that you mean to do us good by your proposal, and we thank you heartily. But you who are wise must know that different nations have different conceptions of things, and you will therefore not take it amiss if our ideas of this kind of <clears throat> education happen not to be the same with yours. We have had some experience of it. Several of our young people were formerly brought up at the colleges of northern provinces. They were instructed in all your sciences. But when they came back to us, they were bad runners, ignorant of every means of living in the woods, unable to bear either cold or hunger knew neither how to build a cabin, take a deer, or kill an enemy, spoke our language imperfectly, were therefore neither fit for hunters, warriors, or counselors. They were totally good for nothing. We are, however, not the less obliged by your kind offer, though we decline accepting it. And to show our grateful sense of it, if the gentlemen of Virginia will send us a dozen of their sons, we will take great care of their instruction and their education. We will instruct them in all we know and make men of them. Having frequent occasions to hold public councils, they have acquired great order and decency in conducting them. The old men sit in the foremost ranks, the warriors in the next, and the women and children in the hindmost. The business of the women is to take exact notice of what passes, imprint it in their memories, for they have no writing, and communicate it to their children. They are the records of the councils, and they preserve traditions of the stipulations and treaties 100 years back, which when we compare with our writings, we always find exact. He would speak, he who would speak, 
rises. The rest observe a profound silence. When he is finished and sits down, they leave him five or six minutes to recollect that if he has omitted anything he intended to say or has anything to add, he may rise again and deliver it. To interrupt another, even in common conversation, is reckoned highly indecent. How different this is from the conduct of a polite British House of Commons, where scarce every person without some confusion that makes the speaker hoarse in calling to order, and how different from the mode of conversation in many polite companies of Europe, where if you do not deliver your sentence with great rapidity, you are cut off in the middle of it by the impatient loquacity of those you can serve with, you converse with, and never suffered to finish it. Politeness of the savages in conversation is indeed carried to excess, since it does not permit them to contradict or deny the truth of what is asserted in their presence. By this means they indeed avoid disputes, but then it becomes difficult to know their minds or what impression you make upon them. The missionaries who have attempted to convert them to Christianity all complain of this as one of the great difficulties in their mission. The Indians hear with patience the truths of the gospel explained to them and give their usual tokens of assent and approbation. You would think they were convinced. No such matter. Mere civility. A Swedish minister, having assembled the chiefs of the Sakwahana Indians, made a sermon to them acquainting them with the principal history facts on which our religion is founded, such as the fall of our first parents by eating an apple, the coming of Christ to repair the mischief, his miracles and suffering, and so on. When he had finished, the Indian orator stood up to thank him. What you have told us, says he, is all very good. It is indeed a bad thing to eat apples. It is better to make them all into cider. We are much obliged by your kindness in coming so far to tell us of these things which you have heard from your mothers. In return, I will tell you of some of those we have heard from ours. <coughs> In the beginning, our fathers had only the flesh of animals to subsist on, and if their hunting was unsuccessful, they were starving. Two of our young hunters, having killed a deer, made a fire in the woods to broil some part of it. When they were about to satisfy their hunger, they beheld a beautiful woman descend from the clouds and seat herself on that hill which ye see yonder among the blue mountains. They said to each other, It is a spirit that perhaps has smelt our broiling venison and wishes to eat of it. Let us offer some to her. They, present her. they presented her with the tongue. She was pleased with the taste of it and said, Your kindness shall be rewarded. Come to this place after thirteen moons and you shall find something that will be of great 
benefit in nourishing you and your children to the latest generations. They did so, and to their surprise found plants they had never seen before, but which from that antique time have been instantly cultivated among us to our great advantage. Where her right hand had touched the ground, they found maize. Where her left hand had touched it, they found kidney beans. And where her backside had rested on it, they found tobacco. The good missionary, disgusted with this idle tale, said, What I delivered to you were sacred truths, but what you tell me is mere fable, fiction, and falsehood. The Indian, offended, replied, My brother, it seems your friends have not done you justice in your education. They have not well instructed you in the rules of common civility. You saw that we who understand and practice those rules believed all your stories. Why do you refuse to believe ours? On the page after that last conversation, I forget where I stopped. Why do you refuse to believe ours? In between there, there's a sheet with no writing, but a sketch of what appears to be a hot air balloon. Makes me think that Franklin's mind was wandering and he was contemplating seeing things from a distance, contemplating seeing things from on high. Now, in these interesting times that we live in, everyone on the planet has the ability to see the planet from the moon. We can see the world we live on more clearly than any generation that's ever lived on it. And there are vapors of smoke, blood and fire and vapors of smoke, wars and rumors of wars all around us. And if we don't stop the fracking, we are going to kill the forest, the whole forest. That could happen, you know. We've done some stupid things. We really did kill all the cod. There were so many at one time that Basques said there you could walk to Newfoundland on the backs of the cod. There were so many, and it was kept secret for so long. And then between the end of World War II and 1980, roughly, human beings fished 
the Atlantic cod essentially out of existence, upset the ecology so much that certain fishes from up under the polar ice cap that were always driven off by the big old cod that used to guard the little baby cod. Well, all the big cod were dead and the little baby cod now were eaten with glee by these fish that weren't very good for people to eat and they didn't multiply in such a way that they became commercially fishable and that happened in my lifetime. In my grandfather's lifetime, my great-grandfather's lifetime, they killed all the buffalo. No, of course, they didn't kill all of them. But they killed close enough to all of them that other species came in and took over the land that they once took care of, killed all the grizzly bears that once took care of the buffalo by eating only a few and keeping the wolves at bay chasing antelope. That all changed when man got there and man messed things up. Well, before man was messing those things up, Ben Franklin was sitting there doodling on this piece of paper, drawing pictures of a hot air balloon and I imagine he was thinking once again of one of those experiments. What if I could just rise above it all and see beyond time and see what would become of this experiment? This experiment where men were taking off the hats that the kings had put on their heads, bowing politely and saying, Thank you, sirs. We can think for ourselves from this point forward. Well, that's what I think he was thinking as he was doodling there, drawing what appears to be a hot air balloon. These documents are available in lots of places on the Internet. Uh, I would imagine Googling Benjamin Franklin and savages will bring you to these documents and, and the actual facsimiles of the real document. I'll pick up here where <clears throat> Ben continued. Speaking of the Indians, when any of them come into our towns, our people are apt to crowd around them. You guys hear that? I live in the flight path to Miramar, which is where the Navy once trained their top gun pilots, and now that belongs to the Marines. It's a really, really powerful entity on this planet. The power that can afford to have jets and helicopters by the thousands waiting for a war. Well, not waiting, just waiting for the wars they've already started to grow to the point where they need these other helicopters. I digress. Back to the Indians, their manner 
when any of them come into our towns, our people are apt to crowd around them, gaze upon them, and incommode them where they desire to be private. This they esteem great rudeness, the effect and want of instruction in the rules of civility and good manners. We have, they say, as much curiosity as you. And when you come to our towns, we wish for opportunities of looking at you. But for this purpose, we hide ourselves behind bushes where you are to pass and never intrude ourselves into your company. Their manner of entering one another's village has likewise its rules. It's reckoned uncivil in traveling to enter a village abruptly without giving notice of their approach. Therefore, as soon as they arrive within hearing, they stop and holler, remaining there until invited to enter. Two old men usually come out to them and lead them in. There's in every village a vacant dwelling called the stranger's house. Here they are placed while the old men go around from hut to hut, acquainting the inhabitants that strangers are arrived, who are probably hungry and weary, and everyone sends them what he can spare of victuals and skins to repose on. When the strangers are refreshed, pipes and tobacco are brought. And then, but not before, conversation begins with inquiries, who they are, whither bound, what news, and so on. And it usually ends with offers of service if the strangers have occasion of guides or any necessaries for continuing their journey. And nothing is exacted for the entertainment. The same hospitality is esteemed among them as a principal virtue, is practiced by private persons, of which Conrad Weisner, our interpreter, gave me the following instance. He had been naturalized among the Six Nations and spoke well the Mohawk language. In going through the Indian country to carry a message from our governor to the Council of Onondaga, he called at the habituation Canestigo, an old acquaintance who embraced him, spread furs for him to sit on, placed before him some boiled beans and venison, ven boiled beans and venison, and mixed some rum and water for his drink. When he was real, well refreshed and had lit, lit his pipe, Conestego began to converse with him, asked how he had fared the many years since they had seen each other, whence he then came, what occasioned the journey, and so on. And Conrad answered all his questions, and when discourse began to flag, the Indian continued it and said, Conrad, you have lived among the white people and know something of their customs. I have been some time at Albany and have observed that once in seven days they shut up their shops and assemble all in the great house. Tell me, what is it for? What do they do there? They meet there, says Conrad, to 
hear and learn good things. I do not doubt, says the Indian, that they tell you so. They have told me the same, but I doubt the truth of what they say, and I will tell you my reasons. I was lately to Albany to sell my skins and buy blankets, knives, powder, and rum, and so on. You know, I used generally to deal with Hans Hansen, but I was a little inclined this time to try some other merchant. However, I called first upon Hans and asked him what he'd give me for beaver, and he said he would give me no more than four shillings a pound. But says he, I cannot talk on business now. This is the day when we meet together to learn good things, and I am going to the meeting. So I thought to myself, since we cannot do business today, I may as well go to the meeting too, and I went with him. There stood up a man in black and began to talk to the people very angrily. I did not understand what he said, but perceiving that he looked much at me and at Hanson, I imagined he was angry at seeing me there. So I went out and sat down near the house, struck fire and lit my pipe, waiting till the meeting should break up. I thought, too, that the man had mentioned something of beaver, and I suspected it might be the subject of their making, so when they came out, I accosted my merchant. Well, Hans says, I hope you have agreed to give more than four shillings a pound. I said to him, No, says he, I cannot give so much. I cannot give more than three shillings and sixpence. I then spoke to several other dealers, but they sung the same song, three and sixpence, three and sixpence. This made it clear to me that my suspicion was right, that whatever they pretended of meeting to learn good things, the real purpose was to consult how to cheat Indians on the price of beaver. Consider but a little, Conrad, and you must be of my opinion. If they met so often to learn good things, they would certainly have learnt some before this time. But they are still ignorant. You know our practice. If a white man in traveling through our country enters one of our cabins, we treat him as I treat you. We dry him. If he is wet, we warm him. If he is cold, we give him meat and drinks that he may allay his thirst and hunger and spread soft furs for him to rest and sleep on. We demand nothing in return, but if I go into a white man's house at Albany and ask for vittles and drink, they say, where's your money? And if I have none, they say, get out, you Indian dog. You see, they have not yet learnt those little good things that we need no meetings to be instructed in because our mothers taught them to us when we were children. And therefore, it is impossible their meeting should be, as they say, for any such purpose or have any such effect. They are only to contrive the cheating of Indians in the price of beaver. That was written during 
1782 to 1783 by Benjamin Franklin, the only one among the founding fathers with whom I feel I have any kind of a relationship at all. And I hope to use my podcast to do something similar on a much, 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 much smaller scale, considering the number of human beings there are on the planet. But I've been encouraged lately now that I've dared to make my voice hearable. Some of the poems that I've published on HelloPoetry.com have had a couple thousand readers, and that's very encouraging. You know, there's not many hardback poetry books that have been published in the last 50 years that have had more than a few thousand readers. So we live in interesting times. We have wonderful tools available to us. If you can hear me saying this, you probably have the tools to do it yourself. I'm doing it with a smartphone. <laughs>